Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're certainly not going back to the world that existed before the pandemic. So it is a new normal or it's a different world, a new world. And I think one of the big questions for 2021 is to what extent do new behaviours that have been adopted in 2020 in response to the pandemic, in what respect do they stick? And so we've obviously seen an enormous shift in things like, you know, people having to go to school remotely, being able to go to work remotely. After such a blindsiding year 2020, pandemic, grocery shortages, social distancing, lockdowns, financial crisis, Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. How in the world do you get your mind around what comes next? We asked Tom Standage of The Economist magazine. The special issue is the world in 2021. Stick around. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Follow on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. And tune in now in much of Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia on WERA 96.7 FM. Joining me from London, it is a pleasure to have you, sir. Tom Standage, economist editor who's editing the issue, The World in 2021, The Look Ahead. How are you, sir? Top of the afternoon to you, I guess I should say. It is. I've, I've got my cup of tea here, so I'm sort of living up to all of those English stereotypes. But yes, it is tea time here, so good to be here. So alas, alack, take me back to, let's say, Thanksgiving or December of 2019. Did anyone have this in their crystal ball? I faintly remember talking to you guys about the advent of a couple of years ago. It was veggie burgers will have their day. Nobody was really talking about teleconferencing, much less a pandemic or the advent of Peloton and all the various different um, sea change disruptions that hit us in the unprecedented year 2020. No, absolutely not. So, I mean, in, in retrospect, if you go back and look, there have been people warning about the likelihood, in fact, the certainty of a pandemic for several years. Uh, so um, there have been people who have been making some noise about this. And in fact, I went back and looked to see what we've said in The Economist. And um, in January of 2019, we wrote a piece about uh, essentially how vaccine companies were preparing for producing vaccines more quickly in future. And the term that people use for the next pandemic for, for many years has been disease X. And so we've written a few articles about, you know, how, how to prepare for disease X. Um, and one of the things that's actually happened in 2020 is that the new vaccines that have been produced have been produced as quickly as they can because these new platforms were being developed. So these were vaccine platforms, in other words, ways to make vaccines rather than vaccines for specific illnesses. And that meant that when an illness came along, it was much easier to build a new vaccine for them. And that, that's exactly what we've seen. So, um, so there were people doing this, there were people getting ready for this, and we did have some coverage of it in The, in the Economist, but we didn't have anything in the world in 2020, the annual. And uh, of course, the first cases um, only came to light in December of 2019. And um, the reason it's called COVID-19 is because uh, it was given a name right at the end of December. And uh, that, of course, invalidated one of the many, many things that the, the pandemic has done. And one of the least important uh, is invalidate all of the predictions that people made about what was coming in 2020, including ours. To what extent did you go back and study 1917 and 1918? I heard a show this morning about Woodrow Wilson's illness and kind of negotiating the Treaty of Versailles and how that changed the course of history. And I know there's only so much stuff out there. I was shocked to see that it was really buried deep in the pages of the New York Times because uh, the end of World War I was front and center. But how instructive was that? I mean, we, we did see anti-mask campaigns in St. Louis and in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And we did see a second wave, much like you're seeing the second or third wave in the United States autumn. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, the lessons from previous pandemics have been very well mined, I think, by the world of journalism. Uh, going right back to the plague of Justinian, there's been a lot of coverage of that. Um, and then there was an ancient Greek um, plague, actually, even earlier, wasn't there? Was that um, was that the 5th century BC? Um, and then obviously, you know, the Black Death and what did that do to productivity? So people have been asking all sorts of questions and saying, how can we learn from these previous examples? Um, you're right. In the case of the 1917 flu, one of the things that was happening was that lots of countries didn't want to admit that they had it, uh, rather like we see today with the coronavirus. And the reason it's called the Spanish flu is not that it started in Spain. It's just that the Spanish authorities were particularly unusual in admitting the number of cases that they had. And so when uh, cases showed up in other places, people would say, oh, it must have come from Spain. But it actually wasn't from Spain at all. Um, the most interesting piece of information I saw actually about the uh, about the 
Spanish flu outbreak, as we all, the, you know, that, that 1917 outbreak, um, is that people often say that the average age of victims in that pandemic was 28. And uh, so it's very different to what we see with coronavirus, where young people are much less susceptible to becoming very badly ill and much less likely to die than older people. Uh, and this goes a long, a long way to explaining why this has affected developed countries, which tend to be older uh, than developing countries, which tend to have a much, much larger young population. And um, it turns out that it's not just that the average age was 28. There's a huge spike of, of victims from the 1718 pandemic um, who were 28. In fact, most, I mean, it's the largest single um, age of people. There's just an enormous number of people who died who were aged exactly 28. And it turns out to be because there was a previous um, outbreak in 1890, um, exactly 28 years before. And what seems to have happened is that newborns who were exposed to that outbreak of a different flu had their immune systems messed up in such a way that they were then particularly vulnerable to the uh, the 1718 flu. And so that's why there was this enormous number of people who died at exactly the age 28. Um, and so it's a reminder that, you know, there may be sort of consequences that we're, you know, we're unaware of, of this pandemic uh, down the road. And we're already looking at things like long COVID and what does that look like? And, uh, you know, th there are going to be surprises coming uh, with this pandemic for probably quite a long time. So to get ahead of ourselves, the fights over vaccines, there is promising news with 95% uh, protection potency vaccines from, from uh, Moderna and from Pfizer. The question now is how to provision them to the developed and developing worlds and who gets them first, frontline nurses, uh, hospital employees, elderly people. This will now morph into a uh, logistical puzzle, the likes of which we haven't seen, especially because during the interregnum, you're not getting indication, at least at the outset, that the Trump administration is cooperating with uh, uh, President-elect Biden, that that's still up in the air. No, exactly. So this is turning from a medical challenge to a logistical one. And I think there's a very widespread feeling, if, particularly if you look at the markets, that, you know, the, the vaccine is here, it's going to be a silver bullet, we'll all get a shot and everything will go back to normal very quickly in 2021. And I'm afraid that's not the case. Um, because simply manufacturing these things um, at scale, um, you know, are there enough needles? Are there enough bottles? Are there enough people who can actually do the injections? Uh, different countries have had, you know, enormous problems just provisioning PPE and uh, dealing with things like test and trace systems. And it's been, you know, very obvious which countries are well organised when it comes to that sort of thing and which aren't. And it's also, you know, there's been this disparity with uh, with PPE. You can leave PPE lying around in a in a you know, on, a, on the tarmac of an airport or in a warehouse, nothing bad will happen to it. It's plastic or, or cloth or whatever. You can't do that with vaccines. Some of these vaccines need to be kept at very low temperatures. The Pfizer one needs to be kept at below minus 70. Um, so that means that you also have the logistical challenge that the, the clock is ticking. When you open one of those packs of the Pfizer vaccine, you've got 975 shots in there, which you have to basically give within a quite short period of time and then you've got to get those 975 people back again in three weeks for the second shot uh, and this is going to be you know taxing even for the most well-organized countries so you've got that logistical challenge um, and then you've also got the politics added on top of this as well so you've got some countries like britain and america that have placed large orders for vaccines and they're sort of like we're going to look out for our people first and they're um you know then going to be able to vaccinate a larger number of people sooner um and that's probably, you know, not going to go down terribly well with other parts of the world. We've got the COVAX initiative with 180 countries where essentially rich countries are subsidising access to the vaccine for poor countries. That's going to start with an objective of covering 3% of, uh, of people in all member countries. And that's, as you noted, the frontline workers and the, the vulnerable populations. They hope to get to sort of 20% by the end of the year. I think that's quite ambitious. But I think even in countries with quite a lot of vaccine access, like Britain, I'd be quite surprised if I get a shot before the middle of next next year. Um, you know, obviously, my wife's a doctor, she'll get one earlier. My parents are in their 80s, they'll they'll get one earlier, I hope. Um, but I'll be at the back of the queue, which is the way it should be. Um, but just, you know, the idea that we're all going to be back to normal in in, uh, in the spring is, is not the case. It's going to be, we're still going to have to wear masks, because until you get to a level of herd immunity, um, essentially, you know, it doesn't count. So um, I think this is going to be an enormously difficult communication challenge for politicians to try and explain why, you know, some people are getting it, some people aren't. And then factoring 
in the question of sort of scepticism towards vaccines further complicates matters because you've got obviously a whole load of people who think vaccines are you know are dangerous in the first place wrongly um, but then you've got another group of people who maybe are fine about other vaccines but are particularly worried about this set of vaccines because they've been developed so quickly and they say well maybe corners have been cut and we shouldn't you know shouldn't trust them um, I don't think that is the case I think certainly the western vaccines have been through all the right protocols um, but there is that extra level of scepticism and so we have you know in some countries as many as half of, of people who are polled say they wouldn't have a coronavirus vaccine. So we'll see what actually happens when they're offered one. But, um, but you know, I think that's all a very, very worrying situation. And the danger, of course, is that everything else that happens next year is sort of largely dependent on what happens with the rollout of the vaccine. I mean, how the economy recovers in different countries and in different industries depends on what happens with the vaccines. So an awful lot rests on this. And that's why I think next year is a particularly unpredictable year, because you've got this sort of interaction of the of the medicine and the economics and the politics, and they all sort of depend on each other. And, um, and that just makes things even more volatile than in a normal year. Tom, you mentioned the word normal, which is something I always love to drill down in when we're talking about these, you know, once every 10 year, 20 year seismic shocks. So whether you talk about the September 11th attacks, what's normalcy after that? After uh, 2008, 2009, people were pondering the new normal. Certainly, this was thrown around a lot uh, in the time of uh, Hoover and the Great Depression, World Wars. What does normal look like after this? For example, at the very mundane level, is the handshake gone for the time being, the buffet, the salad bar, uh, certain things that we used to take for granted? Even if you do have a vaccine, uh, when do we, you know, uh, there are so many Starbucks cafes that have been closed in the United States. There's a mass die out of uh, sit-down intimate restaurants. What, what, When this reverts back to some sort of mean, what does normal look like? Now, that's a very good question. And, and maybe I shouldn't have used the word normal because we're certainly not going back to the world that existed before the pandemic. So it is a new normal or it's a different world, a new world. And I think one of the big questions for 2021 is to what extent do new behaviours that have been adopted in 2020 in response to the pandemic, in what respect do they stick? And so we've obviously seen an enormous shift in things like, you know, people having to go to school remotely, being able to go to work remotely. It has to be said, only a minority of people can do that. So I'm very lucky and you're very lucky that we can do our jobs remotely, um, but we shouldn't pretend that we're representative. It's less than 50%. Even in the richest countries with the best connectivity, um, like the US and Norway, um, it's still it's still you know 40-something percent of people who can do that. But obviously, working remotely has become a lot more widespread. Um, things like online shopping. So uh, the various consultancies, you know, McKinsey and, and uh, PwC and so on, They've come up with uh, these numbers about how quickly uh, adoption has happened this year. So by various reckonings, we've had five or ten years worth of adoption of things like telecommuting and e-commerce in the space of a few months. Uh, my favourite example is Italy, where... Shopping online is quite, you know, it, it's relatively uncommon compared with uh, with other rich countries. And it's because in Italy, you know, people like to go to the to the shop and talk to the shopkeeper and it's part of a local community and, and so on. Um, and uh, Italians are very, very into that. And um, and so having been forced to shop online because of the very strict lockdowns that they've they've had in Italy. Um, I mean, really, like, don't go any further than 500 metres from your house kind of stuff. So lots of people have had to um, figure out how to buy groceries online for the first time for for example. And, um, and there have been these hilarious stories of sort of Italian grannies discovering the joys of Amazon and buying all sorts of stuff. And, uh, and you know, my granny is addicted to Amazon kind of uh, headlines. Um, and, you know, the question is how much of this snaps back? And obviously, we're not going to go back to the way things were before. But equally, obviously, we're not going to keep on doing all of the things that we do online, online um, forever either. So it's going to be somewhere in the middle. And what makes this, again, particularly unpredictable is that the answer is going to vary depending on which country you're in. And also, depending on which activity you're talking about or which industry you work in. So, for example, the finance and tech industries are quite relaxed about people working from home. Other industries aren't. Um, some countries, European countries, um, uh, particularly actually the US, is particularly relaxed about people in those industries working remotely. Not so in China, where where polls show that far fewer managers are, are willing to let people take you know more more of their days working sure. from home. So it, again, it's going to be a very very uneven um, picture, and that means that the the new normal. Is is going to you know it's going to look very different in lots of unpredictable ways and that means more 
sort of volatility. And it means as companies, if you're whether you're a coffee shop or a cloud services provider, you're going to have to adjust to the way that different industries in different countries end up and what that equilibrium looks like as it sort of emerges over the next couple of years. Um, so the, the key thing is going to be agility. It's going to be it's going to be measuring what your customers are doing and being able to respond to that. And uh, that's going to pose a, a lot of challenges to a lot of companies. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Joining us from London is Tom Standage, Deputy Editor of The Economist. The issue is the world in 2021, uh, which you edited. Sir, I I am interested uh, in the concept of risk. In your editor's letter, you wrote... uh, This could potentially be a wake-up call for other risks. Let me quote this. Academics and analysts, many of whom have warned of the danger of a pandemic for years, will try to exploit a narrow window of opportunity to get policymakers to take other neglected risks, such as antibiotic resistance and nuclear terrorism, more seriously. Wish them luck. I often think about, Tom, the pricing of risk and how you could have priced it. Clearly, this blindsided uh, the United States at the very least. I mean, if this emanated out of the Hubei province in Wuhan in China, uh, the bond market certainly wasn't expecting it. Currency markets weren't expecting it. You saw these convulsions in U.S. markets in March and that when people realized the severity of this and an economic shutdown and that there was no blueprint for it, what is risk going to look like going forward? And I know it's a it's a huge thing to unpack, but everything from business interruption insurance to the pricing in capital markets, that's that's been very front and center for me this year. I think what we're likely to see, and we've seen this before um, with, with previous crises, is that a, a shock like this prompts companies to, and people, in fact, to sort of increase their, uh, their insurance and their, uh, you know, essentially set systems up so that they're more resilient. So um, we're going to see that with supply chains, for example, companies that have their supply chains very dependent on China, uh, then there's this big shock. So there will be a certain amount of, okay, let's make sure that we're not dependent on a single supplier for stuff anymore. And that will push costs up in quite a lot of areas um, and similarly I think you know businesses will be will be will be taking some risks more seriously of what are, how what are, what are the other uh, risks that we haven't been taking into account do we need to make sure that our our you know climate risk is are we taking that seriously enough have we got the right insurance uh, what about earthquakes what about uh, antibiotic resistance I mean there's all of these other uh, what about terrorist attacks what you know there, there's all of these other things and so I think a, a lot of people will look at that um, and then what will tend to happen is that over the, you know, the years of, of things not going wrong, people will take another look at them and say, well, why are we still doing that? And uh, someone I was talking to this week in financial services said, this is the pattern you always see, um, that after 9-11, everyone, you know, massively increased their insurance and went and did lots of risk analysis. And then by the time the global financial crisis came around, um, a lot of people had done cost cutting and said, well, we don't need to do this. We don't need to do that. Um, and then we had a different load of risks uh, in the financial crisis. And, and now we're going to get the same thing here. So, um, so I think that's uh, quite likely. That said, if you look at what happened in Asia with SARS, um, you know, that really did scare everybody. And um, one of the reasons that a lot of Asian countries were able to respond so quickly is that they did things like they built separate entrances in hospitals that you could use for people who were at risk of being infected with a with a pandemic disease. Um, and so that meant they that stood them in very good stead <laughs> this time around. But I think um, just going back to this particular prediction for next year, you yes, you do have people in the same way that we had people who were warning of the dangers of pandemics. Um, for you know, for several years, we've got other people who are saying, what about antibiotic resistance? What about nuclear terrorism? What about the risk of rogue AI? One I'm particularly, I'm, I'm not so worried about that one, I have to say. Um, as someone who plays with actual AIs, I don't think they're likely to go rogue that soon. Um, but then the other, the other big one, obviously, is climate, because climate, most obviously, is a risk that is staring us in the face that we're not doing enough about. And so I think... Um, you know, one of the one of the silver linings, and there are a few to this crisis, has been that people are taking that much more seriously, and it's because climate is in some ways uh, very different in the sense it's a very very you know it's a it's a chronic problem. It's it's going to take decades and decades to fix, and it's been building up for decades and decades. Um, but it's also like the pandemic; it's a it's a global problem that can only be tackled by everybody working together. Um, in both cases, nobody is safe until everybody is safe, and it doesn't matter if one country tries to you know fix the problem if the rest of the world doesn't do it, then we've still got the same problem. So um, I think climate is the kind of the most obvious one and the one where the most attention will now be paid, which is a great thing. Um, But yes, I think there are going to be people who are particularly obsessed with some of these other risks. And we're going to um, hear about 
about those risks in the coming year uh, as they try to take advantage of this brief window of opportunity to to um, catch the ear of policymakers and say, well, here's another risk that you know you don't want to get caught out by. Well, from a business interruption perspective, you kind of been once bitten massively. I mean, for those that have survived this year that are barely hanging on, that are wishing that they had looked into their business interruption insurance, which carves out the possibility of pandemic. You did see that example of Wimbledon, which happened to be lucky enough to buy pandemic insurance. It got somewhat of a windfall when it had to cancel its tournament this year. Do you know of any underwriter out there or, or the markets must be contorting to figure out how to sell this kind of insurance? Now, that's a very good point. I don't know. I haven't looked into this closely. But yes, is there a is there going to be a boom in basically people taking out pandemic insurance that they end up not using? And then uh, and then actually it's the asteroid or you know something else that, that catches everyone out. I don't know. But um, I'm sure there are people looking into that and, and trying to price it. You talked about China in your letter, more U.S.-China tensions. Don't expect Mr. Biden to call off the trade war with China. Instead, he will want to mend relationships with allies to wage it more effectively. Many countries... Uh, where they're talking about inside sub-Saharan Africa to Southeast Asia, are doing their best to avoid picking sides as the tension rises. Are you not surprised uh, in in the China if you believe that this emanated from Wuhan? Uh, so quickly cordoned off the issue there and had a rather robust economic recovery screaming out of this since the beginning of the year? Um, yes and no. So the, the economic recovery in China is incredibly impressive. It is it is totally V-shaped. Um, so there was much talk of a V-shaped recovery elsewhere. The only country that's done it is China. And in fact, it's even more am- amazing than that. If you look at the predictions for the, the nominal GDP of China for the end of 2021, they are now the same as they were at the beginning of, t- of 2019. In other words, so the predictions made at the beginning of 2019 for the end of 2021. So in other words, China is going to end up exactly where it was expected to be had the pandemic never happened, which is extraordinary. But on the other hand, it's not that surprising that China could do it because it's much, much easier to fight a pandemic if you have an authoritarian government. And if you look at the severity of the lockdowns in in China, they basically told everyone to stay in their homes, had drones flying around. If you went shopping and and you had your temperature measured on the way into the shop and uh, it was too too hot, they would literally take you to a, a, a clinic to be tested and if you tested positive, they would then take you to a gymnasium that they converted to, you know, into into a COVID hospital, and they would keep you there. So, um, you know, that is a level of invasion of personal liberty that um, Europeans or Americans would not stand for, and um, uh, that's one of the reasons why China managed to fight this so effectively. I mean, it, it's just it's just much, much easier uh, when everyone has to do whatever the state tells them and is used to doing whatever the state tells them. And we see the absolute opposite of that in the United States, where, you know, you've essentially got this city by city, state by state chaos. And um, and it, there is no, there's absolutely nothing happening from the centre. There's no coordinated federal resp- response. It's astonishing. Um, and it's not only a, the US that's lost out there. If you look, if you look back at the previous um, crisis in this area, the Ebola um, outbreak, the US led the global response um, to that and um and so it wasn't just i mean you know i think there were one or two cases in the us during that but um the main thing is that the world has missed out on american leadership here too there's been no coordinated um program on this the g20 had one emergency meeting on this in march if you look back at the global financial crisis the g7 were like having weekly phone calls as they all coordinated their bailouts and so on um it really is incredible how little has been going on at the top on this uh, particularly in the us and how you know trump has just totally walked away from it and hoped it would just go away um it's astonishing but you know that's that's the absolute polar opposite of what happened in china and you can see the results playing out you can see it in the death toll tom it's been nearly 20 years since china rose to acceptance in the world trade organization uh and and it's parlayed that into incredible economic gains incredible sustained growth if not in the double digits and in the high single digits on average uh you know, it survived 2001, 2002. It survived 2008 and 2009 in a way that just unbelievable amounts of infrastructure. And what you just mentioned in that this was just barely a blip for China in that something that could have been cataclysmic for them, that really could have felled the economy and shut down the economy there. Uh, have we had any reference point for any sort of hard landing or, or a deep recession or, or depression for China in the modern age? Uh, well, I don't know. People are always saying that the, the, you know, the Chinese boom is about to come to an end and will there be a hard landing or will there be a soft landing? Um, I mean, you know, clearly Chinese growth was has been slowing for, for some time, but it's still a rate of growth that you know, Western countries would kill for. Um, so, you know, this rebound is a, is a rebound. I mean, you get these very, very 
rapid rates of growth that are rebounds and you know and it's it's going to go back to the sort of trend rate of growth that it was at before um so i don't know this is i mean a rebound is a different thing from a long term you you, you, you short term figures and long term figures are just different things um so the rebound is very impressive and china's just going to go back to the rate of growth it was at before and um you know, I don't think there's any more to it than that, really. I I, I don't think this is going to sort of suddenly turn into a recession for China. Mm. After the tech acceleration, your letter writes, in 2020, the pandemic accelerated the adoption of many technological behaviors from video conferencing and online shopping to remote working and distance learning. In 2021, the extent to which these changes will stick or snap back will become clearer. You mentioned earlier that we got almost a decade of advancement in teleconferencing, things that seemed exotic or strange before that. Now, how many Zoom calls a week are you summoned to? Uh, how, you know, Online orders, uh, uh, Peloton, the growth of Peloton of, as, as gyms the world over have, has you know, shut down. Even something like Tesla, which you wouldn't have expected looking at the United States tech-heavy NASDAQ index, that if I told you that we'd have a, a, a pandemic here, 250,000 people plus uh, dead by Thanksgiving, uh, bond yields collapse, and that one of the reactions would have been for people to pile into these trillion-dollar tech stalwarts like Apple and Tesla and Facebook. Would you have believed it? Uh, well, yeah, I think so, because um, certainly the tech companies, I mean, Tesla's a bit of a special case, so we'll come to that in a minute. But I mean, the big tech companies um, have done well out of this, because when you are stuck at home, uh, when you're in lockdown, what do you need? Well, you you start doing everything online. You move a whole load of activity into the cloud. You know, you need. I mean, I'm looking at a screen. I've got a 24 inch screen plugged into my laptop here, which I you know bought in earlier this year in the summer. Uh, what do you, what do people want? They want new computers. They want screens. They want cameras. They want you know hot tubs. Uh, they want garden furniture. There's a whole load of there's a whole load of things they want. But the main thing they want they want to they want to be able to do stuff online. They want to move a lot of activity it used to be physical into the cloud and that's great if you're a cloud provider it's great if you're zoom if you're amazon i mean amazon is actually powering zoom um, the back end is of, of zoom is done by amazon mostly it's a bit of a mixture but it's mostly um and then obviously you know microsoft and teams that's been a huge hit as well uh people are spending more time on social media they're spending more time video gaming so i'm not at all surprised that the tech companies do well out of this because um People want more tech when they're stuck at home because it's a way of being, you know, being somewhere else. You can move your activities into the into the virtual world. Um, Tesla's a bit of a special case because um, there's a secular shift happening here uh, from petrol and you know diesel cars to electric cars and this whole process this year is accelerating that more people are buying cars weirdly because they're afraid to go on public transport. So um, so cars seem safer and at the same time governments are are clamping down. You know, Britain's just said that instead of abolishing petrol engine cars in 2040, it's going to do it in 2030. I've just bought a new car. Funnily enough, I've bought a plug-in hybrid because I can see where this is going. And, you know, I I want to be able to uh, use electric power as much as I possibly can. Um, so, yeah, I I think you know, Tesla is taking advantage of a, of a much longer term shift, which is um, it's clear that cars are going to be electric, if, even if we still have privately owned cars uh, by 2035, you know, 2040. And... Um, they're obviously leading the way on that. Um, if you have a so so if you have a, a Tesla, you can see that the whole car has been built um, from scratch to be an electric car. Whereas electric power is being sort of retrofitted into into other cars. Um, and I, I, it reminds me very much of what happened with smartphones. So uh, so the car I have is made by a car manufacturer that is not known for making electric cars. It's very impressive engineering, but um, but I, I kind of feel it's it reminds me of using a Nokia smartphone in sort of 2005, um, which is that Nokia really knew how to make mobile phones. And then as they got smarter and smarter, Nokia was kind of adding more and more features onto them. And then, of course, the iPhone came along and everyone said oh yeah that's how you should have done it and the tesla is the iphone of electric cars here i mean it is just if they've they've just gone straight to the this is how you do it it's a computer on wheels um and so i'm you know i i, I think they're they're driving they're riding a, a much longer term trend there and that's that's what accounts for their market cap that people don't think that the incumbents are in with as good a shot of surviving and if, again if you look at what, what happened in mobile telecoms you know where are nokia and ericsson the people who used to make you know so many of the handsets on motorola nokia and motorola were the biggest two handset makers in the world and they're basically you know they're gone now i mean there's a few nokia phones knocking around but they're not you know it's a it's a someone bought the brand so um so i think the same is happening in cars and i think that's what's been benefiting tesla I, I, i'm not sure it's that heavily related to the pandemic 
Tom, do you also ponder the increased power of the telecom incumbents? If you think about in the United States, broadband, uh, Comcast, and a handful of other players that control that fattest pipe that leaves your house while you are dependent on everything, for everything on that pipe right now. I mean, we're long past the time of of uh, open access and internet neutrality, and there was some uh, reversion back to deregulation on the side of the Trump administration. I don't know how it is in Europe, but are you, are you surprised that we could take for granted that broadband has been robust? I mean, my children are using the same broadband connection right now as I interview you to attend school that we are at at, at, at the mercy of yeah, one Yeah, I can tell. Comcast. You're breaking up. <laughs> now, well, I, I, I have to say, you, you're, you've just started breaking up, and I, I could hardly hear what that question was. So um, I don't know whether it's— Well, that um, underscores my... my question. Is where, There's one pipe leading yeah. out of this house, and I'm interviewing you, and my kids yeah. are sharing it right now to be in school. And it must be the same paradigm around the, around the world that if you're a huge player like— Comcast or to a lesser degree, Ma Bell or British Telecom or some of the big incumbents, you suddenly realize that you are systemically important right now. You might be able to increase rents. You might be able to put the screws to your subscriber base in a different way. Uh, well, no. America is an absolute outlier on this, right? So, I mean, in America, everyone is uh, everyone likes to talk about net neutrality, which is much less of an issue in the rest of the world. And that's because net neutrality and the debate about net neutrality is an epiphenomenon of the fact that there is basically no competition in telecoms in America. Um, in Britain, mm. yes, there is a, a wire that comes into my house from British Telecom, and I happen to get my broadband from British Telecom, but if British Telecom decided they were going to block some websites, in other words, violate net neutrality, I would just switch to a different provider. And British Telecom, by law, is required to give them access to the wires, so local loop unbundling, as it's called. Um, also, it, now my street doesn't happens not to have cable, but most of the streets around here do. Um, so I could also uh, I could also do that. But even though even when I've only got one wire coming into my house, like I do, I have a choice of providers um, because that's the, the the norm in in Europe, and it's the norm in most of the developed world. And America is a total total outlier. And I always find it very very funny whenever Americans have arguments about net neutrality because this is exactly what the telcos want you to do. They want you to go down the rabbit hole of arguing about fast lanes and net neutrality and all this kind of nonsense because when you're talking about that, you're not talking about competition or the lack of it. Um, and, you know, essentially, if this was a European country, uh, they would have been required to provide access, wholesale access to their networks to competitors. That's never happened. Um, the reason it happened in Europe is that um, a lot of those incumbents were formerly nationalised companies. And so um, there was a sort of idea that they had some sort of social purpose and that, you know, having been privatised quite recently, or in some cases still being partly state-owned, um, that you could impose those restrictions on them. In America, it was like, no, we built this network. You can't force us to share it with other people. So it's been a very different mentality. But really, the, the astonishing thing about America is the lack of competition in telecoms. Um, and there's, you know, there are some very obvious things you could, uh, you could do to fix it. My, my favourite um, first step in this is quite a lot of cities have their own fibre networks. Uh, they often run fibre networks to support city services, and they are prevented by law from reselling wholesale access to those services. Um, and, the re and those laws are there because the, teleco the telcos lobbied for them very hard. They said, we don't want cities competing with us. Um, but if you change those laws and you allowed uh, cities that have built very good fiber networks, um, then you could introduce a you know quite viable competitor in quite a lot of places. Um, and you know people are always saying, well, wireless is going to be a, a competitive with with fixed. It never quite is because wireless gets faster and faster, but fixed gets faster and faster too. Mm. Um, but yeah, as an outsider, I just look at America and I just can't believe what a weird market it is because you've basically got these monopolies. And um, unlike in, in you know European countries, they're not expected to share their networks. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Tom Standage. He joins us from London. He's editor of The Economist's special issue, The World in 2021. Uh, Tom, game out the Biden administration's first 100 days, assuming at some point that they hand over the keys from the White House yeah. or, or something happens. What's what's front and center on the agenda? It's not at all certain that he's going to have uh, 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 the votes in the Senate to do anything. There are no, offenses quite. to mend internationally. You guys mentioned uh, maybe some sort of restoration of, of, of some deal with Iran. How does that play out? Well, if you look at what's happened for the for the past few years, you know, the biggest story in the world before the pandemic was the crumbling of the post-war rules-based international order. And Donald Trump obviously accelerated that process, but it was actually going on before he came into office. Um, so, you, you know, the... Uh, 
some of those institutions were starting to show their age and he has just taken a wrecking ball to them and, and you know he's left the who he's left the paris agreement he's paralyzed the wto uh he's left tpp he's pulled out of the iran nuclear deal etc etc so there's a certain amount that um joe biden can try to do straight away he can go back into paris he can go back into the who he can appoint some judges and try and get the wto going again um Getting the Iran nuclear deal rebooted is a bit trickier, but I think he's going to give that a shot. But I think, um, you know, day one, his priority is going to be domestic. It's going to be um, taking action on the pandemic because absolutely nothing is being done about it at the moment, obviously, in a, in a coordinated federal level at the moment. Um, so that's that's going to be his immediate priority. And then getting a stimulus bill, which is probably going to have to be, uh, assuming he doesn't get, you know, get the votes in the Senate, um, he's that's going to have to be quite a lot thinner than he wanted it to be. He wanted this $2 trillion, uh, stimulus, with quite a lot of green infrastructure in there, um, you know, maybe that maybe he'll be able to. I mean, he, he, obviously, he wants to. Um, he, he talks about reaching across the aisle and trying to get some Republicans on board. Um, Mitch McConnell seems to be doubling down on the party of no strategy, and they'll just say no to him, whatever, like they did with Obama. But um, but you know, maybe. I was I was on a call with some people earlier today, some uh, some finance people, and say and I was asking them what's your you know prediction of a big surprise for 2021, and one of them said my prediction for 2021 is that um, is that Biden will actually succeed in this you know that U.S. politics will will sort of become less divisive and we'll, we'll all be astonished, and that Biden will be able to you know pull pull the rabbit of bipartisan cooperation out of a hat. I have to say I'm skeptical, but it would be uh, be very nice if I was wrong, and uh, if it was possible to see coordinated action on a on a stimulus bill um, and on on the coronavirus as well but i think those are going to be the the main ones i think on on the um on the u.s china conflict i think we are going to see biden continuing uh with trump's policies in many many ways i think the rhetoric will change um but essentially he's not going to get rid of all those tariffs that that trump put on on uh, chinese exports and um he's going to simply fight the the fight against china in a in a more nuanced way uh, and in particular i think he's going to try and build a united front with japan and europe uh with whom trump has you know picked his own trade wars certainly with europe um and try and get the western powers generally to um to try and exert mm. leverage collectively on china rather than this kind of mano a mano combat that um that that trump has been doing so i think we might be surprised to see just how trumpy um certainly the china policy is um but Obviously, in other areas, there is going to be a, a, a very dramatic change in the in the music, and, and um, we're going to go from America first to America is back and wants to play its part in multilateral institutions and, and so on. And I think that will be, you know, that's already led to size of relief around the world at, um, at Joe Biden's election. Certainly feels like ancient history at that point. If you think back to the time of impeachment and everything that happened before uh, the pandemic felled the rest of the world, it became the chief narrative of 2020. But the Trump administration, Donald Trump himself, gave the green light to taking out the military ruler of Iran. And the perspective the morning after was that we were on the brink of some sort of World War III, if not a Mideastern cataclysm, that everything was going to fall apart. You were going to see the proxy powers attack Israel. That has not happened. And 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 how would you get in Tehran's head? Are you, Were you just maybe holding out and saying that Trump is not long for the White House? Uh, well, I... If you look back at what he's doing, I mean, Trump has always been a bit strange about this, about military intervention. On the one hand, he says he wants to stop these endless wars. And he's now talking about, you know, pulling as many troops as possible out of Afghanistan before he leaves the White House and, and, and so on. So on the one hand, he's like, I'm, you know, this is stupid. Why are we wasting money on, on, on fighting other people's wars? America first, America first. On the other hand, he, he likes intervention when it makes him look strong. And so, you know, let's whack Iran. Let's fire some missiles at people, whatever. Um, he likes that kind of thing. So there isn't really a coherent foreign policy here. There's just whatever makes Donald Trump feel good on the day. So um, I think, again, we can expect a more nuanced policy from Joe Biden, uh, particularly on Iran, going back into the Iran nuclear deal. It will be difficult to get that going. But at the same time, this is an area where Donald Trump has imposed extra sanctions. And the obvious thing for Joe Biden to do is to leave them in place, but to use them as leverage and say, well, look, I'd really like to get rid of these sanctions, but, um, but, but you know, what are you going to give me in return? So I think that's the kind of approach we're going to see with Iran. And I think, you know, again, that would be a great relief to the other powers who were party to that deal. So the, um, uh, you know, the European powers and so on. Tom, 
What do you think about uh, if you know you 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 look at the perspective of Midtown Manhattan, which before this pandemic, or you take me to whole parts of London and the financial district there, that after this, when so many uh, property owners and real estate investment trusts realized that if indeed the Zoom dynamic and the paradigm worked for people, and companies realized that employees could be as productive, if not more, and you could significantly lower your overhead costs, does this potentially? remainder just millions and millions and millions of square foot of commercial real estate across the planet? And by extension, could that sow the seeds of another financial crisis? I know people in the States have been whispering about this, that once we get past this hangover, how eager are people going to be to get back to work? How eager are our companies going to be to fill those square feet? Well, if you look at um, most forecasts, I think um, people aren't saying we're going to never go to the office again and that you never need offices again. So most people think that the reduction in demand for uh, city centre fancy offices might, you know, the drop might be 15 to 20 percent, something like that. Um, and actually, there could be some quite good things about uh, demand falling. It may free up space for residential property, for example. It's quite difficult to convert offices to residential, but in the medium term, that would be good. Um, another another thing we're seeing here is that if you can work from home more of the time, that means you don't need to live in or near to an expensive city um, quite as much. So we're going to have some people, and we're seeing this with the tech industry already, um, who wants to live in the Bay Area? It's horrible sitting on the 101. No one wants to drive up and down the 101 every day. It's just horrible. So if you can move to somewhere nicer like, you know, Portland or Austin or, or you know, Denver, then, then you, you're going to jump at the opportunity to do that. And you may have to take a pay cut as a result of that. Some of the tech firms are saying, well, if you're going to move, we'll cut your pay. Fair enough. But that does relieve the pressure on these very, very overloaded cities where there isn't enough housing. And so the housing that is available, the prices go up and up and up. Um, so I don't think this is a bad thing at all. Uh, and I think we're going to see this sort of rise of hybrid working where we do still go to the office, those of us who work in offices, but we go, we don't go every day. We go for the things where we really need to go in. And if we're working on a project, you know, and we need to do deep thinking, we don't want to be interrupted, we can stay at home and do that. Um, but if we need to go in and have a meeting and discuss things and come up with new ideas, uh, then we'll go into the office for that. So offices become places places to collaborate rather than places just to work. And then another trend I think is potentially, you know, more use of um, of temporary office space so that you can, uh, you don't need to necessarily, some companies will say, well, we don't need to have an office full time to do that. We can use uh, temporary office spaces uh, so we can basically flex the demand that we have for offices. So I think this is, you know, this is going to be quite a um, a dynamic process. It's going to it's going to take a few years to play out, but I don't see this leading to a sort of complete collapse in demand for commercial real estate. Um, and in fact, some companies have been increasing their um, they've been taking opportunities to take new leases. So if we go back to to Manhattan, I think both Facebook and Amazon have um, have leased space in New York. Um, and the the logic, as far as I can see, is that they've recognised that when they hire people in New York now, previously they'd have said, well, you have to move over to the West Coast if you want to work for us. And now they've realised that actually remote working is fine, but they'd still like you to come into the office. So it makes sense for them to have more office space in other cities and then link everybody up remotely. So weirdly, that's actually led to an increase in demand from those companies Um uh, for office space outside of their their home bases, so I think this is a very complex picture, and it'd be you know very interesting to see how how it spreads out. But I think there are quite a lot of silver linings to it in terms of quality of life and um, and you know property becoming more affordable. Tom Standage of the Economist, I saw that Michael Tubbs penned an essay on guaranteed incomes in your special issue, The World in 2021. Uh, certainly, Americans of all stripes got a taste of that uh, in the spring with an unusually generous uh, crisis unemployment package for people. They were able to take loans. They, uh, uh, You speak to people in the restaurant industry, they said, uh, for, for sitting it out and taking partial wages, I was able to do better, actually, collecting the enhanced unemployment wage from the United States. And, and anecdotally talking to people, this got some juices flowing for this idea of, of guaranteed income, which has been exotic, maybe save for the U.S. presidential candidate, Andrew Yang. Uh, what's your perspective and where is this headed in 2021 and the decade ahead? 
Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, this is one of those areas, um, one of those policies that um, was previously regarded as beyond the pale by most economists and policymakers. And now, like sort of, you know, printing infinite money and helicopter money and that sort of stuff, um, suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, that's fine. These unconventional policies are, uh, are suddenly getting a lot more attention, a lot more love. Um, so, yes, what what um, th these various guaranteed income schemes uh, are doing is, is, is extremely interesting. It's not the same as UBI. So it's not the um, universal basic income, which is where you send, you know, $1,000 a month to everybody or whatever, and whether they need it or not. Um, and, uh, you know, we've objected to those sorts of schemes because you basically end up giving money to the rich who don't need it. And we think that um, this this approach where you have a guaranteed minimum income, in other words, you top people's incomes up to a minimum level, makes a lot more sense. And that's basically what we're seeing in that Stockton experiment. Um, and so, so in other words, it's, it, they're not just giving money to everyone, they're giving money to, to people who lose their jobs, they get this, this fixed income and um and you know they they get a certain amount to keep them going and it's unconditional um so and then they can take on work and they don't lose it that's the that's the crucial mm. thing so i think um i think there is going to be more interest in this and there's there are lots of experiments going on around it but i think part of the the problem here it's a bit like artificial intelligence it's a it's an expression that means different things to different people and covers an enormous range of <laughs> of technologies and it's the same with these um, various schemes some of them are guaranteed minimum income some of them are basic income some of them are universal some of them aren't uh, we think that actually negative income taxes are a really nice way of doing this. Uh, so we think that that sort of approach um, that allows you to smoothly move without being penalised from uh, from not working to, to working, um, we think that's a, a nice approach. Um, and generally, this is the sort of thing where, um, you know, it reduces, it's not just when people lose their jobs, if people are thinking about um, leaving a job, retraining and then switching to another job, you, if you give them a, a certain uh, guaranteed minimum level of income, it makes them much less likely to, you know, to worry to stay in a job they hate um it makes them more likely to switch um if uh, they think that they can they've got a safety net like that to carry them over and so that encourages mobility encourages retraining and, uh, and so on so i think we're going to hear more about this and uh, i think that's it's, this has been a fantastic um laboratory um for these sorts of experiments and uh, in fact for all sorts of i mean for all sorts of unconventional policy we've 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 had these natural experiments going on all over the place and i think economists will be picking over the uh the results of these things that have been tried during the pandemic for years to come. But if you were on the other side of the ledger and you're privy to uh, the, the the monetary easing, the unprecedented monetary easing in the United States, in Japan, in the UK, in the euro area, uh, this is disproportionately, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's helped asset holders. Uh, the stock market has rebounded enormously. If you speculated in houses, I saw that U.S. home prices were up 15% year over year, that if you're a home speculator, uh, you know you could go in and get a sub-3% mortgage. That's where uh, monetary policy, I wonder, and this has been a knock you know, after 2001 and after 2008, that it disproportionately helps people who already have wealth. Uh, yes, that's true. But um, the alternative, if the alternative is not doing it at all, then everybody suffers. So uh, yeah, you you kind of have to hold your nose and say yes, there are going to be there are going to be consequences. I think the flip side though is if you do look at we go back to what you said about the um, the six hundred dollar checks that were sent to to Americans. I mean that had a noticeable that was a that was a great policy in the sense that it had a noticeable impact on um, on it notably reduced poverty. Um, and you know unfortunately that program has come to an end. But uh, you know, there are some there are some of these unconventional programs that disproportionately help the rich, and there are some that are a bit fairer and improve improve equity. So swings and roundabouts. Tom Standage, deputy editor of the Economist magazine, in the six minutes or so we have left with you, take us freestyle. Tell us what we should be covering. Tell us about some other exogenous things or maybe things that are overrated or underrated that you wish you maybe were able to squeeze into this issue. Uh well, I suppose some of the um some of the interesting stuff I I, I was struck by. Um it's the extent to which climate change can be uh, can be you know connected to this. I think um, I, I'm interested in some of the arguments around that. So this idea that uh, if you have a big stimulus, you can um, you can create jobs. So yes, you're throwing money um, at the at the problem, but you can create jobs and you can create green jobs. So you can you can deal with unemployment, you can deal with reskilling and moving people into future industries, and you can fix the economy um, and deal with the climate problem all at the same time. So so done well, a a climate stimulus of the kind that Joe Biden wants to do and the kind that the European Union wants to do uh, would would be would be a great thing. Um, so that's a 
that's a jolly uh, thing to look out for. <laughs> it's a silver lining. And in fact, we have a section in, uh, in the world in 2021, which I almost called Silver Linings Playbook, uh, but it, instead it's called Aftershocks. And it's looking at some of these ideas that people are tossing around uh, for, you know, how can we learn lessons from this? Uh, what experiments, um, natural experiments have taken place? So, you know, the, the other obvious natural experiment has been working from home. Working from home, you know, people were, were never clear about whether it would um, reduce productivity. It seems that it doesn't. It seems people like it. Uh, it's kind of amazing that we we haven't tried more working from home before. So what can we learn from the companies that have, have been doing it for longer, mostly tech companies? Uh, how can we how can we learn from them? Um and then we've also got um, this question of whether, um, so, you know, you'll be familiar with the debate about the working rights for gig workers um, and mm. you know, are they being exploited and so on. So what's interesting is that the pandemic has revealed that we, we need a kind of new deal on workers' rights, not just for the gig workers, but also for the remote workers, because remote working is is showing that existing labour laws are out of date. So we, if we're going to overhaul all of them, it's a way that we can overhaul them both for the, you know, the, the wealthy people in financial services who are going to be working from home a bit more, but you know the current rules what what happens about if you know liability or insurance or 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 whatever um they need this these rules to be overhauled and then uh, so do people down the scale who are who are doing work as delivery drivers and so on so there's a kind of interesting idea that um that there might be a common interest in in revisiting um those sorts of issues around labor laws um yeah, those are the those are the kinds of things. I mean, there was a there's a there's a very jolly piece that we have by our healthcare correspondent about what it takes for a new habit to stick. Because I think a lot of people have you know have ended up living different ways and doing different things this year, and uh, and how much of that will stick at a personal level. You know, will we still be interested in baking bread? I haven't personally been baking bread, but a lot of people have. Um, or you know, have we got new fitness regimes? Or are there are there new interests that we've taken up um, in the past year? Will will they stick? And so it turns out there's a science of what it takes for a habit to stick um and uh, so i found that quite an interesting uh, twist as well so yeah it's it's just you know it, it, there's whatever there's an enormous amount of change um some of it's going to be painful but some of it's going to be for the better and the, the question is you know which bits do we hold on to and, and keep in the future Tom, we have two minutes left with you to the extent that you're uh, joining us from London. What is going on with Brexit? It seems like we're in uh, the 900th year of that separation. <laughs> Tell me about they it. They seem to kick that can down the road. No, where no, where are we in relation to that? So Brexit's actually going to happen on um, the 1st of January. Uh, so we're, we're, this year we're in a transition year. So we're in a uh, an agreement where we basically uh, agree to conform with all the EU rules. So we've we've... We've technically uh, withdrawn from the EU, but we are, we are, it's a standstill withdrawal. So everything stays the same. So I was able to go to, you know, Europe this year in the usual way. Uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't affected. Um, so I'm still treated as an EU citizen. Um, all of that comes to an end. And what's supposed to be happening this year is that Britain is supposed to have been negotiating a trade deal with Europe. Unfortunately, it hasn't happened. It looks like there won't be a deal. If there is a deal, it will be very, very thin and will cover almost nothing and it will be equivalent to no deal. Um, so that's probably going to mean chaos in January. That's going to mean there are going to be lots of lorries backed up um, at the ports on both sides of the uh, on both sides of the English Channel. Uh, it's going to be a mess. It's certainly a really bad time to be doing this because, you know, the economy is in a mess anyway because of the coronavirus and we need to be importing things like PPE and vaccines. So the last thing we want to do is mess up our uh, our relations with, with Europe. But that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, it can't be stopped. And um, it, I, I don't think it's going to be pretty. So, yeah, it's going to be a mess for us in Britain. I don't think it's going to have significant consequences for people elsewhere, but it's an entirely self-inflicted wound. We were warned of a potential second great stink of London. I'm, I'm glad for you guys that you've averted that so far. Tom Standage, deputy editor of The Economist magazine, one of my favorites. I love having you guys on. This issue, it's thick, it's juicy, it's, it's, it'll stay on your nightstand for a long time. The world in 2021, everything from greening the cloud, guaranteed incomes, global cooperation, Europe's role, credit crunch time, vaccines and fairness, the show must go on, clean tech, Wall Street, you name it. Uh, sir, what is your Twitter handle? It's at Tom Standage. Let me say that you are always welcome on this show. It's been a great joy for me. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. This show podcasts to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Subscribe. Follow on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. And tune in now in much of Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia on WERA 96.7 FM, Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. Next week.